The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Good Cross the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions about the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who's all about solving mysteries, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue our spring 2015 TV season with discussions on an episode of Castle, Person of Interest, Star Wars Rebels, and our sitcom section including New Girl and Modern Family. But as always, we also will bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section. Yeah, and we're going to start that news with Nico section off with probably you know some of the biggest news to come out of the entertainment industry movie-wise this year, and that's the 2015 Academy Award nominations. The 2015 Academy Award nominations were released. It's that time of year again when journalists, bloggers, and cinema fans wake up at ungodly hours to find out which films will be heading to the Academy Awards. Check out the full list of nominees in the link in the ACC feed, and stay tuned for even more awards season coverage right here on ATA. Zachary Levi to lead Heroes Reborn miniseries on NBC. NBC is calling upon a very familiar face to relaunch an equally familiar franchise. In his first major post-Chuck TV gig, Zachary Levi has signed on to headline Heroes Reborn, NBC's 13-episode continuation of Heroes, which ran from 2006 to 2010. Details about his character are being kept tightly under wraps, but we're told that Levi will be playing a key role in the reboot. No longer a stranger to superheroes, Levi co-starred opposite Chris Hemsworth in 2013's Thor The Dark World. As of now, the miniseries only only other confirmed cast member is Jack Coleman, who will reprise his role of, of Heroes Noah Bennett, also known as the horn-rimmed glasses guy. But others could appear. More casting will be announced over the next few weeks. Minority Report Pilot Ordered at Fox Fox has given a pilot order to Minority Report, a drama set 10 years after the events of the Tom Cruise 2002 film. The pilot will follow one of the precogs, humans with precognitive abilities, who could see crimes before they were committed as he attempts to lead a normal human life while still experiencing visions of the future. He meets a detective troubled by her past who might help him find a purpose to his abilities. Max Bornstein from Godzilla will write and executive produce alongside Justin Favely and Daryl Frank. Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie cast in TV miniseries. Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie in a television miniseries? Has AMC been reading my dream diary? Apparently, because that's exactly what's about to happen. Thanks to the announcement at the TCA's Winter Tour that the two actors would topline an adaptation of John LeCare's novel The Night Manager. The series will follow former British soldier Jonathan Pine, played by Hiddleston, as he navigates the shadowy recesses of Whitehall and Washington where an unholy alliance operates between the intelligence community and the secret arms trade. That trade, it seems, is run by arms dealer Richard Onslow Roper, played by Hugh Laurie, whose inner circle Pine must infiltrate, also known as become a criminal himself. For a little backstory, The Night Manager is one of LeCare's most beloved and critically acclaimed books. First published in 1993, the spy crime thriller was a bestseller, having been translated into over 20 languages. This just sounds awesome. 
Star Wars Rebels confirms Billy D. Williams as Lando. A while back, Billy D. Williams let slip that he would be reprising his iconic Star Wars role as Lando Carizian for Star Wars Rebels. This week, that report was made official. EntertainmentWeekly.com confirmed the news with a behind-the-scenes video featuring Williams himself alongside executive producers Dave Filoni and others, which is available at the link in the ACC feed. Official StarWars.com contributor Tim Vicoven also tweeted an image of Lando's new look on the show. Given that Rebels takes place between episodes 3 and 4, Lando will be seen as a younger, less experienced, but just as charming version of himself. In Williams' first episode, premiering on Disney XD on January 19th, Zeb loses Chopper to Lando in a game of cards, and the Ghost crew makes a dangerous run to get their droid buddy back. However, when Lando hatches a plan to trade Hera for secret cargo, the crew gets more than it bargained for. Sounds just about right for a deal with Lando. Kyle MacLachlan is reprising his role as Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks Reboot. The Television Critics Association welcomed a very special guest in its winter previews on Monday when Twin Peaks' very own Agent Dale Cooper, also known as Kyle MacLachlan, took to the stage during Showtime's executive session to announce his role in the network's upcoming reboot. Dressed as his iconic character, MacLachlan came out carrying a damn good cup of coffee intended for network president David Nevins. I'm very excited to return to the strange and wonderful world of Twin Peaks, MacLachlan told reporters. May the forest be with you. This just sounds too good to be true. If they can bring back Twin Peaks to TV, then I'm super excited that this hashtag X-Files 2015 that Nerdist got trending might mean that we could get more X-Files. That would be awesome. Woody Allen to create, write, and direct new series for Amazon. Four-time Oscar winner Woody Allen has signed on to create his first ever series for Amazon Studios. Currently being referred to as the Untitled Woody Allen Project, the half-hour series received a full season order. Allen will write and direct the episodes, which will be available to U.S. viewers exclusively on Amazon Prime Instant Video. I can't wait and will definitely check out this series when it comes to Amazon Prime Instant Video sometime next year. Community Season 6 gets premiere date on Yahoo Screen. It was announced Tuesday at the TCA's Winter Press Tour that Community will christen its new Yahoo Screen home on March 17th with two episodes and then release a new one each Tuesday thereafter. Addressing the release plan, series creator Dan Harmon said, There wasn't any talk of following an all-at-once binge-watchable schedule. Rather, I feel in my old-school bones that this is the right way to do it. Maybe old school is the best school. Watch this promo for Season 6 in the link in the ACC feed and read the highlights from the TCA panel in the article, also in the ACC feed. Spider-Man is coming to Avengers Infinity War Part 1. For the last few months, we've been tracking what's become a rather insanity-filled story concerning everyone's favorite New York City-based web-slinger, Spider-Man. When last we checked in, it seemed the franchise was in a strange place at Sony Pictures, as it was in the middle of a massive restructuring after a potential deal with the Marvel fell through over the summer. But then things got interesting. Because of those leaked emails, top brass at Sony Japan were suddenly unhappy with the loss of a potential deal with Marvel, and according to various reports, pushed for Sony Pictures to get back to the negotiating table with the Disney-owned company to get the deal back in place. Since then, things have been quiet, and we've all come to assume that nothing ended up happening, and Spidey is back to where we left him at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2. However, silence isn't always a bad thing, as interestingly, it seems things have worked out. According to the Latino Review, who released a new column today that included a ton of spoilery Phase 2 and Phase 3 news for the MCU, and heroes like Thor, Captain America, and Black Panther, a deal has been struck between Marvel and Sony to bring Spider-Man to the MCU in, wait for it, Avengers Infinity War Part one, not Captain America Civil War, as many originally believed. If Latino Review is to be believed, Spider-Man is coming to the MCU, and he's coming to it in May 2018. Sharknado 3, Ian Ziering and Tara Reid confirmed for sci-fi threequel. Ian Ziering and Tara Reid aren't done fighting off evil sharks just yet. The actors are both confirmed to star in this summer's Sharknado 3. I'm not sure why I love this stupid series so much, but I do, and I love that we're getting the original band together once again for the third go-around. Sharknado 3 will make waves this July. How Fox is Killing Sleepy Hollow 
On Saturday, Fox announced early renewals for a few of its shows, including Newbies, Empire, and Gotham, but suspiciously absent from that list was last season's breakout hit, Sleepy Hollow. Fox's television group co-chairman Dana Walden told reporters at the TCA Winter Press Tour that the network will be making a few tweaks in the second half of season two because the show has become a little over-serialized and that the goal is to return the fun to it. The key word in Fox's comments about the show is unique. Fox is using the term, but it doesn't appear that the network fully understands what it means in relation to the show being discussed. There truly is nothing like Sleepy Hollow on TV. The series is a mashup of several genres and frequently rewrites history in its use of real-life figures like George Washington and Ben Franklin as primary players in an epic war between good and evil. The show doesn't play by the same rulebook as everyone else, so why does it sound like Fox wants to make it more like every other procedural on television? What the network doesn't seem to understand is that Sleepy Hollow's highly serialized nature is largely what resulted in its early success. In season one, the series made effective use of its original 13-episode order to tell a tight, exciting story about destiny, loyalty, and courage in the face of a great evil. The terror created by the villainous Headless Horseman and an overarching storyline about a demon named Moloch releasing hell on Earth, in combination with Sleepy Hollow's quick pace and charismatic central duo, are what initially enraptured the show's fervent audience. Before it debuted, the show's premise sounded pretty ridiculous on paper, but the series embraced its inner insanity, went balls to the wall at every turn, and somehow it just worked. Sleepy Hollow's first season proved that it's still possible for a genre series to find a broad audience on network television. Since Loss ended, not many genre series have managed to pull in the numbers that Sleepy Hollow did in season one, with it averaging 7.48 million total viewers per episode. Unfortunately, that rating success hasn't continued in season two. The series is currently averaging about 4.7 million viewers per week, and that's with a more balanced ratio of serialized stories to standalone episodic ones. One possible reason for the de decrease in viewership is the fact prior to season two, Fox increased the show's episode order from 13 to 18, which ultimately yielded more filler episodes. Like many fans, I feared that this would be the case, and now with 12 largely underwhelming hours under our belt, we now know our concerns were valid. Episodes involving Pied Pipers, Wendigos, and Weeping Ladies took the show through unnecessary detours and slowed its momentum. Meanwhile, the writers tried and failed to build the worthwhile character arc for Katrina, a character many fans dislike for a multitude of reasons. Several of these episodes were eventually revealed to be tangentially related to an overarching storyline involving John Noble's Henry Parrish, but by that point the damage had been done and the phrase less is more had never felt more appropriate. In short, Sleepy Hollow has already cut back on its serialized elements and it's gotten weaker as a result. Producing more standalone episodes is only going to make things worse. Fox is screwing with a great show and turning it into just a run-of-the-mill procedural that no one will want to watch. Way to screw the pooch, Fox. Hopefully the series won't lose those elements like their use of twistery and that special something that made it stand out in the first place. I guess we'll just have to wait and see how badly Fox screws this series up in the second half of this season. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, so with that exciting section of news with Nico complete, we're going to get into the return of one of our old favorites with a solid episode that I think is going to take the show in a good direction and keep things looking up for after having kind of a weak start. So let's talk now about the very funny Castle episode. Good entertaining episode. Castle P.I. When Castle is prohibited from working with Beckett or the 12th Precinct, he gets his P.I. license and shows up at Beckett's crime scene as a private investigator where things don't go as planned. Yeah, Nico, I know we both had kind of our reservations about Castle becoming a private eye in our last discussion, but this episode I thought made it work for me. Because it brought us back to the humor I enjoyed from the early days of the series, where, you know, Castle and Beckett would compete with Ryan and Escovino, kind of who would solve the mystery first. In addition, I kind of found myself becoming invested with Castle, taking out the role of a P.I., because like the guys, I wanted to see if Castle could actually pull 
problem solving of Mr. Red is out. Nico, were these the thing that caused you to be entertained by Castle becoming a PI? Could see it as something that gave the show a much needed breath of fresh air. Dan, I, I was always, I always liked the idea of Castle becoming a PI, and it was exactly for the reasons you mentioned that I thought this worked so well. It was fun, full of humor, and allowed Castle, the show, to feel like Castle of old by having Castle, the character, act like the guy we loved from the first few seasons. I'm also very glad that this was not just a one and done thing, and he will continue as a PI for the foreseeable future because it was just what this show needed to prevent it from getting too stale. So I actually liked it, and I liked what they did. Yeah, good with you on that. I, I think, you know, we toyed with this idea before when we thought the show was on its way to getting stale, mm-hmm. and they kind of always found a way to work around it and kept the show fresh. But after kind of the disaster that started off this season, I think this was a very good move and very good choice at the right time to do it this time. So I bought into it. I thought it was just a lot of fun, and I think it's what the fans want from the show, to go in a new direction. Yeah. Instead of something bizarre. So I'm really glad that they kind of found a direction to go with the show that I think we're satisfied with because it felt organic to the show or a natural progression to happen. Some shows are afraid to change up their formula kind of modes because a good example, they got, they got stuck on a run because they, they decided to solve the problem by gexing off characters, which really upset people, and I think Castle did a much better job here. And uh, in addition to that, I kind of enjoyed how Castle becoming gay P.I. put the sexual touch in Beckett Castle and Beckett's relationship with the without the writers having to do something drastic by Castle not being able to work with his wife, making their usual flirtatious brainstorm sessions come across as a form of forbidden love or a steamy affair, affair that's really fun to watch. Nico, did you also enjoy this aspect of Castle becoming a P.I.? It was fine. It didn't really do much for me, but it wasn't a bad thing either. It was just kind of right down the middle. It didn't really excite me. It didn't make me upset or anything. It just didn't really speak to me in that manner. Yeah, it, it seemed like this was something that the female audience enjoyed. My mom and sister who watched the show with me really liked this and got into this. Okay. Because, you know, it just, you know, they were into that sort of stuff. And my mom kind of likes the romance stuff. So they kind of liked that. They thought it made it feel fresh. It kind of went back to the early days, like I said about some of the other stuff. Okay. So I, I think it worked. I mean, you know, with you, it was kind of a preference thing, I take it. Yeah, but... you know, I'm usually all about the main couple romance and everything in a, in a series. It just, I feel like maybe it's it was trying too hard for me or it yeah. just was not what I was expecting. I, I don't know. It, like I said, it wasn't bad. It just was kind of right down the middle for me. Well, you know, the big thing with you, I, and I know this is your favorite part, is always the chase. That's true. Of them getting together and at this point, that's kind of done. So I understand that too. And with me, it's a little bit the same way, but this was better than what we've seen, I thought. Okay, yeah. Yeah, again, again, my, my, kind of want to say it was a problem with the episode. It was just something that I picked up on, because that, you know, with this episode having such a new but yet familiar feeling direction for the show, the mystery was kind of a, put a little bit on the back burner by not making it as complex as we are used to, but really that was okay because it still felt like a castle mystery, because it started small, almost blew up into a conspiracy, because they convinced itself back down again. Plus, the character dynamic stuff coming out of castle becoming a PI was so good, they had to kind of roll with it. Nika, did you feel the mystery was sort to put kind of backward to speak. Did you, did you understand why the writers went with that decision? Yep, Dan. It wasn't the most sophisticated murder mystery we've seen on this series, but it was just crazy enough to give us a bunch of great castle theories from both Castle and Mini Castle, aka Ryan. I loved how Ryan became the new castle at the precinct because Castle wasn't there, and how yeah. Castle was still able to keep up with Beckett and the guys despite not having the resources of the NYPD. This mystery worked well within the new structure of the series and helped to make it believable that Castle would figure it out and also helped to push the story forward. So yeah, I 
think they did a good job with the mystery this week. But I think it's going to get more complex in the future. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I think rolls. Yeah, I agree. I think this was just trying to establish it and say, okay, this is a new direction of the show. We need to lay these things out. Good now that they laid them out, we're in good shape. But again, it helps having a good actor as good as Nathan Fillon on this show because sometimes laying out plot line or, or laying the groundwork for a new direction gives us kind of a slow episode. Get you know, of course, Nathan is so humorous and hilarious and just, you know, cracks us up all the time that, you know, this episode really did not feel slow at all, despite, you know, the mystery being on the back burner kind of laid out groundwork. Yeah. Now, even though this episode was quite enjoyable for the reason I kind of just said, you know, I, I did have some minor discrepancies about Castle becoming a PI. The first discrepancy, get, you know, you can take it or leave this one, because that Captain Gates has now become a hated character again. I mean, she's not my favorite, but, you know, I, I did accept that she was there a little bit better than we did in the beginning. But then again, at the same time, I get that this time around, you know, I get where she's coming from. Guess Castle's blunder with helping out the mafia could really put every case he solved with like a gutter scrutiny. But it really though makes her a fun killer regardless. You know, you know, we were having a good time with uh, Castle being the PI and the rivalry and all that kind of stuff. And then she kind of came in and, you know, made it a serious thing or, you know, was her normal fun killer self, I guess. So there was that. In addition, I'm kind of wondering how Castle's going to be able to catch a more dangerous killer without his usual police backup. I mean, Beckett made it work out this week, but she can't always be there to bail Castle out. Could I think that's going to be addressed next week? Or possibly used as the maybe end game? I don't know if I want to see that to this story arc. Kamiko, based on what you saw this episode, do you think Castle will become your private eye? Because something the writers could run with for a while to like maybe the end of the season or the end of the series? Or is it something that can only work as like maybe a two or three episode story arc? You know, Dan, I could see it going either way. So to answer your question, I do see it as something that could work for the entire rest of the season and get wrapped up in the finale and somehow return to the previous status quo. Or I could see it blowing up in Castle's face next week when he gets taken hostage or threatened by a much more dangerous killer slash criminal. The writers slash showrunner could easily decide to go either way. As I mentioned before, I like the Castle as a PI story arc, so I don't mind if they do decide to use that for the rest of the season. But eventually I do think that he needs to return to the precinct and work cases with Beckett and the guys. Ultimately, that is where the show needs to be. But in the meantime, I am enjoying this change of pace and really like Castle as a PI. So I could see it going either way, depending on what they have planned. It could yeah. go for a while, but I also could see it getting wrapped up in the next episode or next two episodes. Yeah, because it is set up in a way that it could easily be resolved, but they could also roll with it as well. So that that works. I think that was smart how they did it in that capacity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I personally wanted to stick with it, though. I think this is the shot the arm the show needed. Because I, I just felt like with my family, I was watching it with good other friends of mine that are big fans that I were talking to. They, they were losing interest. And most of those people I talked to this week seem to be excited about it again. So that's why I think they should go for it, because people are excited and pleased about it much more compared to the amnesia thing. So do this, and again, I don't think the show will be around much longer that because because I think they're going to want to go out on top before, you know, the show really gets dismal like that thing called Bones. So that's the other thing. So I, I mean, I think they can grow with it and maybe play it out to the end of the show with Castle B back at the precinct at the very end because there's not much time left of the show. But again, we'll see. Maybe this is going to go longer than everybody thinks it will, too. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So was there any more you want to add to that, or are you ready to move on to another exciting and intense episode of Person of Interest? Well, yeah, I did just want to say that I think you're right, that this show doesn't have much of a life left. I know that it did not get the early renewal for next year. Yes. So there was some talk after after hours in the TCAs, the recent TCAs, that Castle was still a question mark because Stanakonik and Nathan Fillon are, still have to renegotiate their contracts for them to return. And I'm not sure if they have another season under contract 
contract or if it's up at the end of this season. I can see that maybe we only do one more season to wrap things up, and yep. I think that would actually be a very good thing. We talked earlier that I thought that I would like to see Nathan take on a new challenge and really see where he can go next. And I mean, I, I like Castle. I like Castle, and I still enjoy watching it. And I watch it, you know, as soon as I I can on Monday nights. But I think it's about time to see what Nathan can do next. We've seen him do a lot of stuff in the hiatus time, like when he did the movie with Joss Whedon, when he's done some web stuff, and I would love to see him go full on and tackle a new character. Castle was great. I loved it. But we're seven seasons in. I think it's about yeah. time we wrap up and give it a good ending, a happy ending for everybody, and call it a call it a series. Yeah, so, I really I hope that you're right that it's next year is like a final season, maybe it's a shorter season. Yeah. Just to wrap it up. Because I think where it is now, if they decide to kind of pull the plug, I don't think the ending's going to feel right. So I think they deserve kind of like a final ending, you know, crescendo to the end. Yeah. You know, when Chuck finally ended, I thought we got a great ending to that. Yes. I think, I mean, every Everybody hated what happened to Sarah, but it was a good ending. You know, they got to have their love affair again, you know, because of, you know, what happened to her with stealing her memories and stealing her, her mind, essentially. And so we know they went on and had their love affair again. And so that was a great ending. I don't want that to happen here, but right. I do want something of that magnitude of that, you know, oh, we know everything's going to go on. We know that they're going to be doing this. That kind of ending would be great. And I think they could build to that in like a six episode arc next season or, you know, 13 something like that so i i hope that we do see them announce that castle is going to be wrapping up next season that would be a, a great great thing i think because you know they, they should have a strong fan base i think the fans deserve that good i think the network should give it to them because you know they they have given them a solid show for some years yeah exactly i mean that's a success but again with nathan i could see him getting bored and wanted to try something new like we wanted to so that would that would be great to see come a new character a new show something like that come abc put him somewhere you don't want to lose him that's all i have to say so let's move on to a show that's also that had a big focus on maybe an actor that we don't want to lose for this show. But again, if it does happen, then that totally fine. I mean, it don't make sense for the show. We stand to see that particular character go. But for her situation of, and I'm talking about the character Shaw going missing, really kind of set up an interesting episode that gave us the look at how the government is reacting to the evil AI that we've been battling this season, known as Samaritan. So let's talk now about first of all, the interest episode, Control Alt Delete. Control, who oversees the handling of relevant numbers for the government, begins to question the methods and intentions of the Samaritan program. Meanwhile, alarming news reports of a pair of vigilantes rampaging through the Northeast begin to surface. I was really honestly surprised to see Control back in this episode, because I had thought, and maybe I just got confused, the government had given Greer her position after Samaritan had come online. Come I welcome Control's return to the show, because I thought the writers did a very good job of making us interested in following Control as the protagonist of this episode by coming a daughter making her come across because less of a villain because she has something to fight for now. Got Samaritan's liaison to the government coming across as a complete political bureaucratic prick. Come, Nika, did these factors make you want to root for control? Get succeeding at getting up, getting one up on Samaritan? Go figure out what's going on despite being portrayed as a villain in the past? In a sense, in this episode, control filled the role of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. What I mean by that is that I was rooting for her because she was in direct conflict with Samaritan because she was starting to question the intel that Samaritan provided 
and started to mistrust Greer and his operatives. Thus, she was the lesser of two evils and the enemy of my enemy. So for this episode, she was the protagonist of, of an episode. I like the way the writers framed the episode so that we, for a moment anyway, put aside our previous feelings for control and actually rooted for her to succeed against Samaritan. It was not till until the end when she killed that guy that we remembered that she is not a good guy, just someone who is beginning to lose faith in the Samaritan system and maybe starting to question it. And we can get behind that, but we definitely don't think she's a good guy. Yeah, again, they did a good job of us becoming so angry at that Samaritan representative that we didn't hate control as much. Yeah. You know, that guy really ticked me off. I mean, that's great. I mean, that, that's great writing and great acting, but I, I just wanted to punch the guy in the face. Oh, yeah. The entire episode. I mean, he was really just menacing. I hope they bring him back again, because I just I thought he was a great way to put a face to Samaritan. Now, at the same time, and I was kind of, you know, surprised and yet disappointed by this. If you go on TV.com, normally episodes of Person of Interest, they, on, a, on a 10 scale, are normally get about like 9, 9.5, 8.5s on their rating system for every week. with, And that's that's kind of audience or user reviews there. So it's what the public thinks of the episode. And this one kind of got in the summit range. So that made me feel like the episode kind of received flack from viewers by just them not liking that it focused on the guest characters. And I think this came from the way things ended with Shaw last week. And yes, there are a lot of network shows that have gotten off the ball with doing episodes focusing on guest characters. Come a good example of that would be probably Supernatural. But I thought this episode handled it brilliantly with the quality of Doctor Who, which is, I think, the best example of this type of storytelling. Because this show is so good with character, as we saw from people like Control, Grice, and even that prick working for Samaritan. Plus, I thought it was critical for us to see what's going on from the government side of things with Samaritan to keep escalating its battle with the person of interest team. Because Samaritan seems to have much worse in store for the world than just crashing the stock market. Nico, did you like the way this episode's story was told from the standpoint of the show continuing to stay fresh? Could you think it played up the theme of escalation, which we know Jonathan Miller can portray oh so well from films like The Dark Knight? I did enjoy the way this episode was told from a different point of view than we are used to seeing in this series. So often we only see the story unfold from the person of interest team's perspective. It was great this week to see it from Control's perspective. Of course, the next evolution of this, or way for them to push the limits, would be to go full-on Rashomon and tell the same story from three or four different perspectives. Like, the first part shows the traditional aspect of seeing the story unfold from the person of interest team's perspective, then after the first break we come back and see the same setup from Samaritan's operative's perspective, then after the second break we see it either from the machine or Samaritan's perspective, or even Control's perspective, all ending at the same point, and then after the final break we come back for the wrap-up or continuation of the scene where all three setups cut off. This week's different perspective opened the door for seeing future episodes from all kinds of different perspectives, and I like that. The only problem I had with this episode and any future episode that plays with perspective or follows other characters was that this episode did not focus on or include a person of interest. Sure, there was a number of sorts this week, but it was a relevant number and not the irrelevant person of interest that this show needs and we discussed being the backbone of the series last week. So I hope that with escalating the storytelling this week and in, in the future, the writers do not lose sight of the importance of the person of interest each week. We mentioned that last week in our discussion that that is the backbone of this series and what makes it important and, and so good every week. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, now, I mean, did you think that this episode didn't really have a person of interest? That's the way I felt, yeah. Okay, okay, because, I mean, I just felt that, you know, maybe they were doing the idea that Shaw is in danger, that she was a person of interest. I mean, there were ways I tweaked it around that, like, I accepted it. Yeah, they they didn't have Shaw's number, you know, because that would have yeah. implied that she's still alive and would have answered the question, so they didn't want to do that. Now, they, could you say was the terrorist, but, the guy they thought was the terrorist? But the person of interest team wasn't attempting to save him and wasn't working to save him, and his number did come up. It just 
came up in the relevant side and was given to Samaritan and or given to control and their operatives and Samaritan's operatives took him out. So I, I would say it wasn't a person of interest. Or yeah, he wasn't I, a person I, I, I didn't think it would be as bad at dropping the ball because the episode where Curse Kid got killed. No, it, it definitely still followed other aspects and I don't think it was bad. I just don't want it to happen regularly. Right. I, I, I want that person of interest to happen every week and, you know, every once in a while like the Kara Stanton episode or something like that. It doesn't necessarily have to do that, but I want it to be the focus of yeah. the stories and that is what's got us to this point and that's what's got us to have such a great show is the focus on saving that person regardless of what else is going on in the world. Yeah, they're going to be yeah. fighting Samaritan, they're going to be doing that, but the machine still focuses on its mission and saying, yeah, Samaritan's a huge problem we need to deal with that, but this person's going to die if we don't save them. So I, I yeah. want that to be a continued focus of this series. Yeah, I think it was just a result of focusing on a side character this week. Yeah, exactly. And again, I don't think they're going to focus on a side character every week, so I think we could kind of fudge it with this one. Yeah, I'm just thinking because this opens up to doing a lot more different perspective episodes yeah. that when they do those different perspectives, we still need to see that person of interest, especially when if they do that Rashomon from three different angles yeah. episode, we need to see the person of interest team going about saving that person. Then whatever, if it's if it's uh, a gang trying to kill somebody, then we need to see it from the gang's perspective as well. You know, if it's Samaritan coming after an innocent person, then we need to see Samaritan's operatives working towards it. And you're only going to get about 10 minutes from each perspective because that's what a commercial break amounts to, you know, in between commercial breaks amounts to. So you get 10 minutes in like a cold open with the person of interest team. Then after the first commercial break, you get approximately another 10 minutes with another team or another perspective. And then you get the third break or in between the second commercial and the third commercial, you get that third perspective. And then those all end at the same point and they wrap up and then as the closing of the episode you see the continuation of that so that's how i see them doing a perspective where it actually works you know changing the perspective but you still get that person of interest story and i, I think they could do that a couple different times and you know spread that out but do something like that a couple times and, and be very successful with it and still feel true to the series and what has gotten them to this point to do really creative things like this i think that they're going to be on top of it oh Normally i don't know when they drop the ball on something like this or miss something the next time they try it gets fixed or, or it's changed or they clean it up yeah that's the nature of pushing the envelope and being the first to do things is it doesn't always work out perfectly the first time but when you've done something and see that it does work you can come back and make it perfect the next time you're absolutely right and this show is very good at picking up on its mistakes and fixing it yep I mean, some, some shows are good denial that they're doing anything wrong right this show picks up on it and it immediately addresses it and fixes it yeah they're very good at tweaking themselves but again the mistakes they make are so minor that you don't feel like the show has lost any momentum or energy or is going to go off the rails. So, I mean, the consistency is great here. However, for how little they were in the episode, I really did think, I really thought the writer did a nice job of making the scenes we got with the person of interest team count. Like when Fusco told the one guy he knocked out the Red Wings suck, which was awesome for me as a Blackhawk fan. Kind of love that moment. Yeah. Cheer. yeah, that was but, great. But putting sports aside, Control figuring out that Finch was making the team believe Sean was alive when he's convinced that she's dead did a really nice job of putting people got the debate we had last week got if Shaw is alive or dead especially with Reed still holding out hope even after me told the truth I also liked how Fitch tried to level with control got convincing her that Samaritan is the bad guy by explaining that Shaw sacrificed herself to save the world without anyone ever knowing her name but I still believe she got the recognition she deserved when Reese and Grice backed off trying to kill each other over sharing a mutual respect for Shaw but I wouldn't be surprised if Grice starts a mission to find Shaw of his own or maybe helps out the person of interest team. Nico, even 
because this episode was primarily focused on guest characters. Did you feel they made the short time we had with the person of interest need count that satisfied our need for progression with the Shaw story arc? Absolutely. After last week, I asserted that Shaw was dead. I, much like Finch, believe there was no way she could have survived that onslaught. This episode and the way the writers progressed the story made me believe that maybe Shaw was still alive and that Root and Reese are on a rescue mission and not merely a recovery mission. I love the ambiguity that the writer this week wove into the story and how they progressed the Shaw story arc to the point where we can hope that she's still alive somehow. If Shaw is indeed dead when they find her or if they are unable to find her, I sort of hope that maybe Grice will replace her on the team because of the respect he had for Shaw and his own desire to have actual intel on the people he kills and not just blindly follow Samaritan. I think that eventually he will go rogue against Samaritan and maybe that leads him to joining the forces with the person of interest team. I think that's a cool idea. Even if they can't save Shaw or find Shaw, that her being such a great agent and someone who trained Grice and made him into the person he is and into the, the great agent that he was, maybe still her legacy lives on through him joining the team or something of that nature or him helping the team. Even if he doesn't join, he goes rogue on his own. I think it would be a great way to keep her alive in this, in a sense, and that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I agree. I still don't know. I can't make my mind up on this. Exactly. They're really confusing us with the interviews and all their stuff they did outside of the show, too. I, I don't know. I'm really kind of on the fence about that. But again, the, the ambiguity makes the show exciting to watch. And so that's good. And again, continuing to enjoy that Grice character. He's pretty good. And I kind of like the how he's kind of, I feel like we needed somebody in the government that's still kind of normal, or at least we could see as somewhat of a good guy. And I think Grice does a good job of doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we need that big time again. But again, I, I keep wanting to call him Captain Boomerang because <laughs> he kind of stole the show on that episode of the barrel. Right. But, uh, you know, it's it's cool to see him here as Grice as well. Two really awesome jobs for this guy to have, so kudos to him on that. He's going to be having a blast. Anyhow, with Control not believing Finch when he made a pretty convincing argument that Samaritan is a threat, her kind of not seeing Shaw the hero, killing an innocent man just because he fit the terrorist stereotype, makes me feel like she has to face some sort of retribution for essentially becoming an executioner. In other words, if the threat of Samaritan is averted, I don't think she's going to come out squeaky clean. I'm not saying they're going to kill her daughter, but she's got to pay some sort of price for her sins just to fit the heroic morality that's been established in the world of the show. Nico, do you agree with me that Control has to face some sort of retribution? I think she will die herself. I think at the end of the episode, she was beginning to believe what Finch told her and will begin to start doubting the Samaritan program and the validity of the intel that Samaritan provides, which will eventually put her at odds with Samaritan, and she will attempt unsuccessfully to fight Samaritan or somehow shut it down and she will die in the process but I think in doing so she will save her daughter from any retribution at the same time I see her paying the price for her sins with her life but saving her daughter and who knows maybe even Finch and the person of interest team in the process as well but yeah I agree she will need to pay for a pay a price for her actions in this episode and her previous actions as well so yeah I definitely see her paying the price but I don't want it to be a price where her innocent daughter dies or something happens terrible to her I think it'll be that yeah. she pays with her own life yeah I, I, I think that's where it's gonna go. I think that's the, the best way to do it, especially to fit within the heroic morality of this show. Yeah, exactly. But again, as TV has taught us in the past, karma comes back to bite you in the butt. Oh, yeah. There's action that you perform where, in writing, you just you can't let the character get away with it. And I think she's performed some of those. So, I think we both agree that's why she is going to be in this place, where we think, you know, she has to pay the price in some capacity. 
Because for issues with the Sunset, because really I just I can't think shake this off from the back of my mind that a kid acting as Samaritan's avatar is kind of hokey. Because the way that we feared the machine would become when it started becoming a character. I kind of thought the scene where Root interacted with Kid worked, but I didn't think the writers would take it beyond that with him showing up at the White House to threaten the president's chief of staff. In my opinion, Samaritan is much more frightening when it's represented by its assets, like the prick that was in this episode, or when it's texting controls phone, telling her to stop, get melting down completely. Computers. I know this is a very, very bizarre example. People are going to be kind of wondering what I'm smoking by bringing this up. But my sister Katie praises the show for dealing with the liars, for making this mysterious character known as A, who stalks the girls on that show, frightening for six or seven seasons by just sending them messages or texts. In other words, what I'm getting at is sometimes what's scarier to an audience is what they don't see, instead of what's put right in front of them. Because if a teen soap opera got ABC Family knows that, then it should be no, a no-brainer for high-quality show, like Person of Interest, which makes me want them to do away with this kid as Samaritan's avatar. Nico, do you agree with me on the kid coming across as hokey? And if not, can you give us something that maybe can ground it within Person of Interest, usual realism? Dan, I had no problem with the kid being Samaritan's avatar in the real world. In fact, I actually liked it. I like the duality of the situation in that a child should be innocent and yet is spouting this terrible and manipulative stuff to the president's chief of staff. I like seeing Samaritan tell the kid exactly what to say and how creeping disturbing it is to have a seemingly innocent kid as the spokesman or avatar for the big bad of this series. It just works for me. We've also seen this work very well on other series where a child is an immortal or possessed vessel of a demon or god and it has worked to very creepy and successful effects. I think it is equally successful for me here on Person of Interest. It just works for me. I don't know what it is about it. It just seems to work for me. I know it, it bugged you but it just seems to work. It makes it uh, a touchable enemy to the mixed American the touchable enemy. Okay. Because you can't hurt a kid. I mean, is that... Right. Is that right. kind of fit what you're thinking? Yeah, I think that works for it. I think it makes it... Yeah, exactly. It, it, it makes it that much more creepy and that much more menacing because it is this innocent kid being almost like a human shield for the monster of, that Samaritan is. So, absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, that makes me accept it a little more. I, I just... For whatever reason, this one just makes me a little nervous that it's cheesy. So, maybe I, I need more apprehensive because I love this show and I don't want them to make a mistake. And I'm getting jumpy that they're going to slip up somehow because, you know, all shows have that point where they run out of steam and steam and oomph. But I don't want to see it to happen here. Right. I mean, I really want President of Interest to go out and be done before that happens. And I think Jonathan Nolan is a smart enough writer to have an end in mind and say, okay, this is done. I know where to stop. I think the best writers know where to stop. But a good example is like uh, Sons of Anarchy and its finale a couple weeks ago. Because the way that show ended, you know, it ended the way he always intended it to end. And he set it up so it was going to be a seven story arc. Because by the time that arcade would end, everything felt fulfilled because he knew it was going to be seven seasons. He knew what happened to happen every each season to make it go to that. And when it all came together at the end, it all paid off beautifully. And I really hope President of Interest could do the same thing. Again, in my opinion, and this is perfect things with Sons of Anarchy, there were some parts where I thought it kind of went off the rails with the violence and some of that other stuff. Again, that's personal preference though, with me, but President of Interest, I'm much more into it and, and more enthusiastic about the morality stuff that goes into it with Sons of Anarchy. was a gig story, and I, I'm not as much into that sort of thing, so that's why I had some criticisms with that. But President Mitras, I feel, is a hero's journey story or a superhero kind of story. And so I really want to make sure it comes off perfectly because I'm just such a lover of those types of stories. I want this to be one of the more memorable ones because it has been so good so far. So that's why I think I'm paranoid about this kid. Is this is the big bad, this is the big enemy, enemy. I just want to make sure it's done right and everyone's satisfied for it, with it because this show's so good. 
and you know, I really think everybody needs to appreciate it and enjoy it. So I don't want something to happen where that's going to change. Okay. Got the eight things I'm person of interest this week. I've kind of got the crackpot theory that maybe the computer technology major who was killed by control was working for the machine instead of Samaritan, meaning that he was writing a code to shut Samaritan down, and Samaritan sent the government after the poor guy to counteract the machine. What's your thoughts on this theory, Nico? Can you think the machine using everyday people to write a virus is what's going to defeat Samaritan? I like that idea, Dan, because I agree with you that I think the machine reached out and set up a tech startup to hire these programmers to write a virus that could hurt or even kill Samaritan. I think it would have worked, too, if Samaritan had not caught wind of the plan and interceded to kill the programmers. But I think this will be how the machine defeats Samaritan in the end, or at least will be part of the way the machine wins. Unfortunately, this time it got innocent people killed, and thus it will be a learning experience for the machine, and next time it tries to do something like this, it will be much more careful and, in in a sense, more successful, too. But I like your theory, Dan. I do. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yep, so the machine is like the show in terms of writing. Yep. Yep, it, it makes a mistake and the next time it does something like this, it'll be more careful and more successful. So that's, that's that's perfect. And really, again, I think it would be awesome or a good comeuppance if the machine uses, you know, innocent people or, you know, everyday people to stop Samaritan because that gives a huge significance to the, to the irrelevant numbers, which this show is all about. So if Samaritan is defeated by the very persons of interest this show focuses on, that would be great. It would make the most logical sense. Yeah, agreed. Because I know that's a really important aspect to you and everybody with this show. There needs to be a person of interest. And if the person of interest is, or persons of interest are the ultimate weapon to defeat Samaritan, that's that's perfectly very fitting. Okay, so are you ready to move on to sitcoms now, Nico? I am. All right, well, let's move on to some very funny stuff with, of course, one of our favorites that doesn't always get the ratings and I don't know why, New Girl, with an episode that I called Coming Out. Now that they are a couple, Jess has a tendency to show favoritism towards Ryan, which has a negative effect on a class field trip. Meanwhile, Schmidt develops an ulcer, and Winston takes an obsessive liking to wearing a crystal. My favorite comedic moments from this week's episode would have to be the field trip pitches by the teachers at Jess's school, got them coming to her office to complain when they didn't get their way or their idea chosen. Really, these supporting characters had it all when it came to last. They had talk about turning freaking poop in the water, a freaking trip to ghost town where much would be provided, get a freaking fake phone call to follow up the biology teacher, calling himself a failure, where he complained to his brother about the ass she had given him. On that note, I would have to say the biology teacher and the old lady teacher were the best out of all the oddball teachers we saw in this episode, because they had the best lines and a whole field trip storyline paid off into the comedic goal of looking at foliage, actually being the biology teacher using his students to work on his yard, breaking several child labor laws in the process. Nico, what were your favorite comedic moments from this week's episode of New Girl? My favorite comedic moments were Winston and his crystal. Now they gave me this crystal to help me on the streets but i'm starting to think it's gonna help me in the sheets i also loved how when coach put it on it immediately got coach country line dancing that was great yes i also laughed at schmidt's attempt to relax coach's face after getting stung and when ryan called sex splishy splashy but jess will this make things tricky for your work and will that in turn make you distracted and preoccupied during our splishy splashy also i actually really want to do ryan's field trip how cool was that actually driving the real mars rover awesome yeah i'm surprised the teachers just didn't want to go on the field trip exactly so yeah good stuff good timing 
get a where do you get one of those crystals? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'll teach you how to light dance. I don't know. We'll see. Anyhow, funny episode. Great stuff. As always, cracks me up. I love this cast together, because their interactions, and all the wackiness of this show in general. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Modern Family with, that went back to sort of their early season, more slapstick trick, entitled The Big Gun. <laughs> Fed up with Ronnie and Amber's boat on their front lawn, the Dumphys strike back by calling on Phil's dad and his retired friends to help them prove a point. Meanwhile, Jay and Gloria clash over Jay's potty training, and Cameron takes Lily to clown school but doesn't tell Mitchell about it. My favorite comedic moments from this week's Modern Family would have to be Phil and Luke coming up with a movie where a guy can fax himself places called Just the Facts. I think that would be an awesome movie because I'd love to work on that screenplay because I think you could really do some funny stuff. And, you know, that would be good stuff. Could be a lot better than that goofy movie called Pulse where the fax machine goes evil or something. So I think this would be a fun comedy film. I also uh, got a laugh out of the reasoning behind why Jay was tired of buying diapers for Baby Joe. Got Lily pulling dirty clown pranks. God damn. Because the return of the physical humor for the first two seasons was really a nice change of pace to what the show relies on now for humor. As in the timing of dialogue, its delivery, and the tying together of awkward events. So this was a solid way to bring back the Fizbo, the clown concept. Would we had thought it kind of played itself out. Nico, what were your favorite comedic moments from this episode? My my favorite comedic moments were everything Luke and his interactions with the girl next door. Yes. The whole premise was great, and Luke's inability to talk to her was priceless. I also loved his creepy factor that was added to it as well. Well played. Also, I kind of like the way Alex was helping him in the end with the ignoring her technique. You know that's totally going to work on the show. So, I like that. I'm kind of rooted for Luke with this one. I don't know why, but it's just, it's, I want the guy to pull it off. Well, part of it is also that that would totally annoy his mom. Yes, yes. I'm curious to see how Phil would react to it, to be honest. Well, I think Phil and Ronnie kind of struck a chord there before Claire screwed it up by calling the cops. Yes. I think they kind of find a, finally figured each other out, and then Claire screwed it all up. Yes. Could Steve Zahn and Ty Burrell interacting with each other could really be funny. Well, that's why I said that I really wanted them eventually to become friends, because yeah. the two of them together with Luke in there as well, oh, you know that that's going to be hilarious. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's going to get better when they're becoming friends, because his first introduction wasn't all that great no. with Steve Zahn. I was really disappointed because Steve Zahn could be absolutely downright hilarious. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, what? You know, how is this crappy? But I, I think they figured out that maybe Friends is the answer that'll make it better. Get up. I love the part that Fred Willard played in that process as well as Phil's dad. That was pretty amusing as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. But you gotta love Fred Willard. He, Fred Willard, he's always hilarious too. Alright, so with that, it's a shorter episode, folks. Get next week, I think it's gonna get a little more intense with the schedule. So it's gonna be a little less discussion about each show but it's going to be fun to have everything back because I'm anxious to see where all these shows are going to go. So, Nico, tell everyone what's going down in next week's ATA episode. On next week's episode, we'll have a News with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week, and we will continue to kick off the spring TV season as we continue our review of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, and the return of Supernatural and Star Wars Rebels. But there will be no sitcom sections as all three are off for the week. So yep. join us next week for all of that. Just a reminder, much of January's schedule is haphazard at best, and we will do our best to let you know exactly what will be on each week. But even Dan and I don't know for sure until things get back to normal later in the month. So bear with us if we forget to mention something here, but if it airs, Dan and I will review it. Also, remember that our entire back catalog is available. If you are just getting caught up on any of the shows we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on the episode. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheoids.com. Now roll that pre-recorded closing.
And also, you can check out our spinoff podcast. Kadika, you want to help me in describing the first one? Sure. The Helicarriers podcast, which is Andy's podcast on our network, dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We also have It's Tangent Time, which yep. is Michael and Wu, and they talk about all kinds of things, geek-related, nerd-related, all the great stuff that we talk about in super in-depth, way more than right. you could do in a single episode of one of our other podcasts. So they dive deep in those episodes and talk about it, and sometimes they just go off on major tangents. That's why it's called Tangent Time. Exactly. We also have the back catalog of Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which has officially wrapped up, but all of our back catalog is available. So if you are going back and watching the first two seasons of Arrow again, you can go back and listen to Wu and Michael's discussions on any of those episodes. And all the new Arrow episodes will be along with Gotham, The Flash, and Constantine in the new revamped DC Nation podcast, which will be Dan and I talking all things DC. It's going to be awesome. And that will still be available on the regular KTA feed, as well as its own feed on iTunes, just so you're not confused. Yep. And you can also contact our podcast through email, cutacrosstheairways at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, cutacrossairwaves. There's those on there. It's just across airwaves or Google+. Plus. Kadiko, how else could you cut? You can leave a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Give us thoughts, feedback, or a review of any of the shows we aren't currently reviewing, or tell us what you want us to review. You can do all of that by calling 773-809-3363 and leaving a voicemail. And how can you listen to our show if you don't know so already? You can listen to our show through Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and the Mix Radio Network, thanks to our good friend Jack Stifle. And you can also listen to our episodes by visiting our website at www dot across the airwaves.com all right so once again for other ata podcast hosts nikki amy andy Blabach, Lou kim and michael j petty i'm dan schmidt and i'm nico rice can you tell our next episode we'll catch you on the airwaves see you guys and good luck on keeping track of the mystery behind the spring tv schedule it's kind of haphazard but we're going to keep you updated on it as best as we can see you guys have a great day Now return to our regularly scheduled program.